This is a Momentum Media production. Nerd alert! Property Nerds, <laughs> the home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and trends. Hello, hello. This is Arjun, the co-host of Property Nerds, head of research at InvestorKid, and I'm joined by the lovely Lee. Hello, and I'm the director of Hills Finance. Well, we've got a very different and exciting episode for today. And as you know, uh, with Lee and I, we just like to get cracking and jump straight into it. Um, And with today's episode, we've actually got a special guest. Now, I will hand over the mic soon to Lee to jump into who our guest is, a bit more about them. But I've got some news. They are a fellow nerd, and I'm sure they love the compliment of being a nerd, which is what we, uh, you know, <laughs> accept and acknowledge too for ourselves. Nerd is the new black, you know. That, that's the new, it. The new black. That's it. So um, with regards to today's episode, we're going to go into a bit more about our finance trends and some exciting releases, but also hand over to our guest who we've got on, on the show today. So Lee, I know finance has been seeing a little bit of an up and down in some recent months, but still at some crazy levels. What's been happening on the finance front? Yep. So ABS lending indicators released for February 2022. Total housing finance has actually fell by 3.7%. And uh, that's by 32.2 billion. However, that was 12.6% higher compared to one year ago. So still better than last year in numbers, uh, but a little bit of a drop. Last month, I think, you know, with February, we were sitting at 18% higher than a year ago. Now it's at 12%. So it's it's actually slowly falling. But yes. Mm. Still Um, at some very high levels though, right? I mean, huge levels. And what's been happening on the owner-occupier versus investor front? Yeah. So owner-occupier housing finance fell 4.7% to $21.5 And that was 1% lower compared to a year ago. So it was, however, 55% higher than pre-COVID levels in February 2020. So like that's a moment to pause and still think like how much demand there is out there, right? 55% higher than pre-COVID ago. levels, crazy. right? So it's a, it's a huge amount. What about investors? What are they up to? So investor housing finance also fell 1.8%. Um, this is the first fall since October 2020, and it has remained close to the record high since the previous month. So no clear falls other than just this recent one for investor finance, but still some very strong numbers. Mm-hmm. So Lee, on the refinance front, I know that there's some interesting trends that you're seeing there. What's happening there with refinances alongside, I guess, interest rates and what you're seeing amongst the banks? So refinances were on a little bit of a downwards trend since the fixed rates were going up and then rose had started rising again and has rose again since January by another $1 billion higher than obviously um, a month ago. And so now our refinances are basically in a line with November 2021 um, that was taking place then for refinances. Now with refinances, Lee, what's interesting is you and I have been keeping track of what we are seeing in the interest rate front. And it's like, irrespective of what the RBA is doing, which is nothing for now, they've been holding tight. Um, We've been seeing a big divide on variable versus fixed rates. Massive. What are you seeing out there? Crazy. I mean, so CBA is obviously the biggest bank in Australia, and they've just recently increased their fixed rates again for a fourth time this year. 
And so um, that's gone up by another 0.5% for the owner occupiers paying PI, and then all the way up by 0.9% and nearly a whole 1% for some investors. So there's a major gap now between fixed and variable rates. Um, you know, on average with the three-year fixed rates between the lowest variable rate, we're now looking at a 1.8%, uh, 86% difference, you know, variable being that much lower than the fixed rate. So variables obviously much lower. We are seeing some great pricing for the variable rates that are very, very competitive across the majors and some second-tier lenders also. And, you know, there's a lot of under-the-table pricing here and there. So just FYI, that's my little tip at the moment. That's what we're seeing. Yeah, I think the fixed first variable decline, I mean, the gap that's widening, I'm seeing some interesting behaviors from people off the back of seeing that gap. Some people are still taking up this huge fixed rate and going, well, I don't, I think it could go more. And then other people are going, well, I want to make sure I stay variable because there's such a big gap. I don't want to pay for that gap up front. Are you also seeing two types of customers like that show up that, as well? That's right. They're, they're saying, I want to take the hit now because what if down the track I stay on variable and then I decide it's still going up and up and up, I fix at that point. Well, then you're going to be fixing in higher again if it keeps going on the current trend. Mm. Uh, however, the people that fixed in pre, you know, two years ago when they were really low fixed rates, you know, like owner-occupier fixed rates with ones, they're going to have a bit of a shock when they come off those shortly. Yeah, I think that's a um, that's a thing that's starting to show signs of change, and that's where you know, before for the last what three four years, everything was all about the fixed rates. But now I think a lot more people consider their variables, who's pricing, move around, consider moving around a bit more and really be tight to those variable rates. Now, Lee, on the on the topic of rates, and that's something that actually leads to an exciting release from our end, we have recently developed our latest market research paper, and that is on the Australia's economic powerhouse cities. Now, with Australia's economic powerhouse cities, that plays such an important role in today's market. Why? Because when interest rates rise, or as interest rates rise, there's a yin and yang effect we're looking for. We're looking for where are jobs increasing, wages likely to increase, a pipeline of strong infrastructure occurring, because all of these things create opportunity on the opposite side of things. And, you know, I'm also realizing that when doing this activity, there were many cities across the country that, interestingly, had prices still in line with many, many years ago. And many years ago, interest rates weren't the one and two percents, they were four, five, and six percent. So when people start considering interest rates and their impacts to cities, they're going to vary massively. So please do consider how interest rates may impact a certain investment in certain cities. Because if you think of, say, a city like Townsville, just as an example, we've been really analyzing that hard of late. 10 years ago, the prices for houses were still similar to now, maybe a little bit more now, but not massively. And so that means that interest rates of 10 years ago were definitely between a 4 and 6% or 5 and 7% even. And right now, uh, the interest rates are nowhere near that. So even if there was a climb up, that city was already paying rates and repayments and so forth at those mm -hmm. levels. So yeah, do take that interest rate variance and finance variance and check it out from various cities and how they handle it or might handle it differently. And uh, do check out our newest white paper, the Australia's Economic Powerhouse Cities. Where can we find that? 
investigate.com.au in the property market research tab under white papers. So check it out. We'll have another episode on that one soon and we'll do a big, big deep dive on it. But in terms of the episode ahead, we had Simon Kusten Marker. Did I say it right? Did I say it okay? I think it's right. He might have to correct you later on, but we'll see. Yeah. So Lee, property nerd. who's Simon and uh, why have we got him on as a guest in the show today? Simon is director and co-founder of the Demographics Group, which is based in Melbourne. And so Simon holds degrees in geography from leading universities in Berlin and Melbourne and has worked uh, for several years as a business consultant with KPMG. In 2017, um, he co-founded the Demographics Group with his partner, Bernard Salt. And so the uh, the group provides specialist advice on demographic, consumer, and social trends for business. Simon has presented to numerous corporate and industry audiences across Australia and overseas on demographic trends, consumer insights, and cultural change in Australia. And Simon's actually also a columnist at the Australian newspaper and the daily newspaper as well. And yeah, so yeah, he's a media commentator on demographic and data matters. So a fellow, right up our alley. <laughs> a fellow nerd indeed. And uh, Simon, um, you know, he added a lot of value in this chat that we had with him. And in today's show, we'll definitely, you know, be jumping over to that conversation very soon. But for those wondering, I guess, the first guest, why Simon? And, and what's really important is property uh, before the data that we go into and before the finance comes people. So, you know, before the trends I see from housing economies and so forth, and Lee gets to see the finance trends, that's her leading place. Before finance and property trends is led by the people. And by that, I mean what behaviors, trends, decisions, what's of importance, what can we expect in people movement? These are such an early, early piece to the puzzle. And this is not us talking about, hey, what's a good market today? What's a good market tomorrow? It's talking about what we see happening across Australia, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, Mm -hmm. and how you can bring these from a people to a finance to a property is why we felt that Simon was the best fit for uh, our first guest. I especially loved his little insight on how migration has impacted certain types of housing in Australia. Mm. I really like that as well. That was pretty interesting. So we're going to jump straight into that interview here with uh, Simon from myself and Lee. Simon, great to have you on the show, my friend. Oh, it's uh, great to be with you guys. Well, Lee and I are excited about this because you know what? Uh, you're the first guest on the Property Nerds show. So we are pumped to not have to keep, you know, just talking to each other the whole time. <laughs> well, mate, um, you know, we, as we spoke to you offline, we genuinely have been absolute fans of your content. And the Property Nerds podcast is a safe space for nerds to enjoy being nerds, right? And I'm a property nerd. Lee's a finance and property nerd. And if it's okay to call you this, but you must be the nerd of all nerds being the demographics guy, right? I am definitely the demographics nerd. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) No, look, an absolute compliment for us, my friend, because I know during this this time that we're in and um, here connecting via Zoom as well, we've obviously seen a lot of things change around us. And hence why when we think of the property and finance world, there are, the change starts from you know people, demographics, uh, trends, things like that before it reaches to things that we know and love to talk about being property. So I guess the big thing that's obviously been on, on the minds of many right now is around the population shifts that are happening. And I know Lee's got a really interesting question on this space. Lee, I might hand over to you. 
Cool. Um, so yes, we've definitely seen a massive shift in population in certain regions during the pandemic. So some thought, you know, this is a new way of living. Other people think, you know, people are going to come crawling back to the major cities. And so I'm really, really keen to hear your thoughts on this. A couple of nice uh, observations here. The first one is, of course, we've seen a big population reshuffle. Before the pandemic, we've seen growth very much centered in the inner city and within in the capital cities. Uh, remember that Australia is the country on the planet where the population is most concentrated. There's no other country on earth, if you, if you discount city states like Singapore, where the population is so heavily concentrated in just five cities. And before the pandemic, we even further concentrated uh, population in the cities. We had all those ideas of decentralizing population growth, growing the regions at a faster pace than growing the cities. None of that really eventuated. And all of a sudden, during COVID, we had cities, capital cities shrinking, and we had regional Australia growing. Why the hell is that? The simple narrative that's sometimes being thrown around is simply that um, you know, people are sick of the city uh, where they are under lockdown conditions. It's, it's a miserable COVID hell and they want to escape to the freedom of regional Australia. I think there might be an element to this where this is true, but it is largely, there's a demographic shift happening um, as well, which is simply you have the largest generation living in Australia, the millennial generation, reaching family formation stage of the life cycle. And it just happened to be that they, at scale, start families right now at the start of the pandemic. So that means the millennials of the inner city, where they live in one and two bedroom apartments, they suddenly need three or four bedroom dwellings because they will add 1.7 kids one by one uh, to their little families. And they might, of course, also need a Zoom room in the house because mm. lots of those millennials will be remote workers. So the demand for housing, for the type of housing that millennials want, goes from a one or two bedroom place to a three to four bedroom place. So they need to go to wherever those places are available. And this is why you've seen in cities, Melbourne and Sydney are beautiful examples of this, where the inner city is bleeding out during the pandemic and people go to the Western growth corridors. And Melbourne also has a Northern growth corridor, but really what you see is the shift to suburbia simply because that's where land is available. So you can kind of jokingly say the millennials just pack up their things in the inner city and they you know, hit the highway and they drive and they, they immediately jump out of the car once they can afford a house. So there's part of this. And then there is, of course, the working from home trend uh, that plays into the reshuffling. Because before the pandemic, the only group that could simply choose where they want to live within Australia based on lifestyle factors were retirees because mm -hmm. they weren't shackled to the CBD, to the inner city anymore. They could really live wherever they wanted. And now more and more workers are at least somewhat free to choose where they live. So we've seen the people that leave the inner city where people paid a premium to live close to the CBD because they wanted to avoid the long commute. Why bother paying this premium now? I'd rather go to a lifestyle location that might be in regional Australia. You know, all those beautiful cities along the coast, all those tree change locations in, inland, they really boomed because people figured, ah, you know what, I can move there and then commute into the office occasionally which actually splits regional Australian growth into two camps. Not all of regional Australia grew. Those cities within a two-hour drive from a major CBD, from a major employment center, those were the boom regions because this enables um, young millennials to still go back to the office occasionally, once a week, 
twice a week max, but they can then have a lifestyle location to live in where they can afford a larger home. And so I think these are the two main drivers of the property shift. And only one of them, the working from home trend, has actually to do with the pandemic. The millennial shift would have occurred either way, even if we had, uh, you know, spared ourselves uh, the trouble of having a pandemic. I like how you've really split that into two, Simon, because so many of us are instantly thinking about, oh, it's just a work from home thing. And uh, we lose sight of the fact that, well, this was always always going to happen, this family formation stage. When it comes to that family piece, and this is something, you know, we often think about just us two, being in a capital city, we sometimes are surrounded by many of our family members, whether it be parents, uncles, aunties. Do you feel anything has come up more so today than it did in the past when it comes to the connectivity of these relationships? Meaning back in the day, one would say that, you know, we were all circled quite close to each other and we perhaps did not, you know, used to be, it wasn't as accepted to be separating ourselves in different cities. Do you feel more today with obviously technology and and other means of staying in touch with our loved ones that it's more acceptable for families to start spreading themselves apart? Because I know us, when we were thinking about it, we have moments where we look at each other and go, the coastline of Bundaberg or the Adelaide, um, Adelaide <laughs> uh, the gardens of Toowoomba, like the hillside, like this would be beautiful moves. And we're like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, dad loves the dogs. Her mom just moved here. And, yeah. you know, we have these movements that call us back. Do you feel that's now changing, though? Because so many others are like, I know mom and dad are here, but I'm going to still make this move. Well, so the general, if you take the decades long view that the trend has gone towards moving farther away from family. Mm -hmm. And remember the share of Australians that are migrants uh, that were born overseas has gone up like crazy over the last couple of decades. So there are by default more and more Australians whose parents live, you know, even a continent away. So that has only intensified. And then the, the nature of jobs, meaning we have more and more people working in knowledge type jobs. That means you can just choose as a, as a person in your 20s, whether you take a job in Canberra, in Brisbane, in Sydney, in Melbourne, you just switch between cities like it's nothing. And mm. at that point in your career, you don't really bother too much about your parents because you still see them occasionally and you don't have kids yet that really make you rethink your, your settlement patterns. And then, of course, while you are you know jet-setting through the different capital cities, um, you tend to find your life partner in one of those cities. And the life partner that you find might not be from your hometown, might not be from where your parents are from. So that means that then you have the families that are further apart anyways. What we might be seeing due to the pandemic is that people start to re, uh, rethink that pattern, that they go, wow, oh, you know what? It's been really annoying to be far away from the grandparents now that we had, you know, we just added the first kid to the family, the grandparents are so far away. Wouldn't it be nice to have them closer at hand? And so that then creates housing movement opportunities into two directions. The first direction is that people think, ah, maybe the regional town where I grew up, uh, you know, or the affordable location that I grew up in where mom and dad still live, maybe I move close to this uh, so that mom and dad can be close. 
The other one is the tag-along grandparent approach, where the grandparents potentially are already in retirement because their kids only start to have kids very late in life. So quite often, once you become a grandparent, you are already retired and you can therefore then, you know, move to a nice fancy apartment uh, somewhat close to, not next door, but somewhat close to your, your grandkids. And I think some people will do that approach. Mm. And so there's movement in that direction happening. But I must admit, I don't think it is a major contributor in terms of how people distribute themselves across the, uh, the Australian continent. The most important elements are lifestyle and affordability. That's what people, that's how people choose uh, their housing now. Traditionally, the most important factor was simply vicinity to the CBD. So therefore, you know, before the pandemic, Australian capital cities very much looked like a fried egg where all the jobs are clustered in the egg yolk in the city center. And in order to avoid the soul destroying commute, you paid a premium to live as close as possible to the yolk. And so we segregated our cities into rich and poor areas, the poor areas further out, the rich areas close to the egg yolk, close to the CBD, close to the office towers. And, you know, that's the Australian cities that we got used to. But now with the during the pandemic, we almost took a, a spatula to our fried egg and we created a scrambled egg city where we have jobs more evenly distributed because people work from home. Now people take their jobs to regional Australia. Offices or big employers start to uh, create working near home opportunities where they open up co-working locations or they rent space in co-working locations so that their workforce doesn't need to work from home, but can go to a centralized hub in a suburban location. So we are completely rethinking the way that we do work, the settlement patterns, and these changes are here to stay. Yeah, Simon, it's a it's a big part. I mean, we when we think about our lifestyle here, and and I always try and bring it back to us. Very selfish of us, but we always uh, bring it back to us. And it actually passes along down to the housing trends in a similar way too. Because you know, one thing when many people think of investing, regional versus capital keeps coming up, and we try and educate them around. Hey, we just need to treat them all as Australian cities to see what they each offer. Because when I think about our lifestyle, we live in the Northwest of Sydney. And in the Northwest of Sydney, our suburb might have, you know, call it 10 to 20,000 people or five to 10,000 if you exclude a few areas of it. But um, with our suburb, we work six to eight minutes away. I have breakfast in this region. I have dinner out with my friends in this region. I go to the movies in the same suburb or this next door suburb. We go out for gym and everything like that is in the same few suburbs. Family so, members down the road. Unreal, right? Of, yeah. Yeah. And so when you think about it, it's just like, hold on a minute. Like even within this capital city, you know, speech bubbles across the sides of it, we're not really experiencing Sydney for Sydney anyway. So one should really start thinking about all the cities that Australia has to offer from their investing perspective, especially since in a Sydney-based example, the CBD doesn't matter much to us and it didn't even matter much to us pre-COVID. So, I mean, this is interesting right now that so many people coming to that scrambled egg perspective, if they start to take that over to their investment philosophy as well, they'll realize that city of 100,000 people isn't actually a small city. It's the same as your suburb that you spend time and work, live, eat, play like we are here in mm. Sydney. And any... so. Of course, you know, there is no such thing as the Sydney housing market. There are plenty yeah. of small pockets that this is operating in. And if you look at this from a small regional housing market, it can be within a city, it can be just a traditional regional town. Even a bit of growth can create massive increases in, in price. 
that's a scarcity principle. It's it's quite simple. We've seen this all across regional Victoria or regional Australia, really, uh, where there wasn't much growth happening before that in the regions. New South Wales is somewhat of an exemption. I think the biggest exemption would probably be Queensland, where you have Gold Coast and Sunshine Coast technically being considered regional Australia, but they are, of course, part of the broader southeast Queensland uh, conurbation, one single connective urban tissue that is essentially. But the regional towns, they saw just a bit of growth. And because they weren't planning for growth, that means there wasn't much additional land or houses available. So even a tiny bit of additional growth made prices go through the roof. So mm. if you just happened to own a property that was underperforming uh, there or wasn't worth much there, you just lucked out because you just happened to be one of the few owners of such a property. So that's the scarcity principle that that always works. And of course, people need to just think about how the big mass that is the Australian population, how they slowly redistribute themselves across the Australian continent. And this is happening based on life stage. Uh, it's very predictable. Every generation goes through the same kind of life stages in the housing cycle. The only difference with the millennials is that they procrastinated a lot and that they started their housing, buying, investing journey a decade later than their own parents. That's, mm. that's it. That just means they stayed in, in the inner city for longer. I think that's a really good segue to my next question, actually. And obviously a big thing that on everyone's mind since COVID is obviously the borders are start, starting to reopen. And so I guess, are you expecting anything uh, different with our migration trends ahead in comparison to the trends pre-COVID? Yeah, so as soon as you let migrants into the country, they will behave in the exact same way that migrants have always behaved from a housing perspective. Because once you move to Australia, you know nothing about Australia, really. You know, you, you know a couple of pictures from the tennis, from the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and that's about it. But what you... The, the Opera House, finding the Opera House. <laughs> we throw the Opera House in, <laughs> and the occasional koala. Yeah. Uh, but, that's, but that's about it. And so the one thing that you're weaponized with is the address of either your university, if you're an international student, or the address of your employer the office location, if you will. Uh, so that means based with this one bit of information, you just try to live as close as possible to that address. And so really that means that migrants, once they first come to Australia, they move into launch pad suburbs. It's the predictable same number of launch pad suburbs that are in the inner city, near employment centers, near education centers. And it just happens to be in Australia that our largest universities are in our largest cities and are in the city center. There are countries where you have university cities, where universities in are a, a city in their own right, essentially. Uh, that's not the case here. Unis clustered in inner city, job, you know, the fried egg model clustered in inner city. And so therefore, migrants will move to those clusters, which is good in the short term, because the only segment of the housing market that suffered a bit was the inner city rental type market. Those mm -hmm. new arrivals, they will be renters. International students rent, they always rent. Skilled migrants, they first rent and they first need to get onto a new permanent visa, blah, 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 before they're allowed to buy housing. So we do know that for the first uh, you know, year or two or three of the recovery, we know exactly how all of the migrants that come to Australia will behave. 
after you are becoming an established migrant, after you, you know, spoken a lot to your colleagues, after you listen to enough smart podcasts on property, you kind of know how cities work. And then your behavior slowly starts to mirror the behavior of everyone else on the housing market. But at yeah. first, migrants are very special in the housing behavior. So that means that once migration opens up again at scale, it's already occurring, the inner city will recover quite quickly. And that's the only thing that will really revitalize the CBDs at scale. We don't need marketing campaigns for the CBD. I think that's, I think it's a bit of a tokenistic exercise. Um, of course, the inner cities, people responsible for the inner cities have to do just that because that's, you know, what they're elected uh, for to, to be doing. But the inner city is attractive, re remains attractive in its own right, and they don't need any advertisement. And growth will come automatically through migration. And in the long term, the CBDs will not go away Because if you grow Melbourne from five to seven million people, if you grow Sydney from five to seven million people, even if the CBD loses in relative importance, it will soon be back to pre-COVID levels, simply because we are growing our largest cities at over 100,000 people per year, which is huge growth. And part of those uh, new workers will be working in the inner city. And do you feel with that growth coming from overseas, are we in shape for maybe some new trends? And what I mean by new trends are, you know, we've had a couple of years where not many people, I mean, little to no people have been coming in. And do we now see a shift in the people from which countries start coming in now from yeah. pre-COVID? Do we start seeing a shift in the volumes? Will it be more or less? Because I guess there's been so many events that have happened during these last few years, people have probably spent more time in their countries than they have ever before. You know, people have seen how their governments and other people treat each other during these times. And then you have the unfortunate circumstances of conflicts and other things like that, whether it be just at political levels or on the ground levels. How do you see perhaps the change itself being from pre-COVID migration to Australia versus Now, post-COVID, and we've also got to add in there, people have seen how we handled COVID, right? Some people saw how we handled it majestically, uh, you know, the gold standard. Uh, some people, some people it. how we, uh, you know, felt that we absolutely overdid it and are laughing at us. It's, it's mixed opinions, right? So what about that? Well, so I do think the first uh, observation that I have to throw in is that we mustn't make the mistake in Australia to overestimate how much people think about Australia. Mm. People don't follow Australia closely. It isn't that important. So the real measure, whether we manage the pandemic well or not, people will not look at the potential, you know, state to state squabbles that we had or something. People won't care about this. People will measure the success of a country in terms of the pandemic based on two numbers. The first number measures deaths per 1 million residents. We're doing extremely well here. You were, I think, something like 50 times more likely to die of COVID in the US than you were in, in Australia. So that's a great success. And then people will look at the vaccination rate, which will give an indication of, you know, how bad a pandemic could potentially be in the future. And that's about it. You already are seeing this, uh, you know, if you just open your, your random news pages around the world, is that we now essentially decided that COVID is over. It's still there, it's higher than ever, but it's it's milder, it's a milder form. But now there is a more pressing, you know, news topic out there with the Ukraine-Russia war. So all of a sudden, I think people will not take too many um, pandemic decisions, uh, you know, with them when they make a housing decision. 
that won't play too much of a role. And to the level where it does play a role, it only favors us because we are a country with a high vaccination rate and with a low death rate. I think that's in the long term, that's kind of the, the summary, what I think there. How many migrants will be let into the country? Hopefully as many as possible. Um, mm -hmm. We have a very low unemployment rate, which isn't necessarily a good thing. Remember that um, in some of the growth areas like a Geelong in Victoria, we have an unemployment rate of two and a half percent. This is a catastrophe. We mustn't want this. We want an unemployment rate of around four and a half, five percent. Uh, that means that businesses that want to grow, that they have a large enough labor pool. We are currently stifling growth by not having enough skilled workers available. That's the current problem that holds us back in our economic recovery. It also makes sure that the one thing that all of these state budgets and the federal budgets wisely wrote into their little policies are very big infrastructure projects. That's smart. It's really good. That's exactly what you want when you go through an economic recovery phase. Build infrastructure, you know, creates jobs, puts money into people's pockets, creates, um, you know, a tool, roads, rails, hospitals that create further wealth into the future. Great idea. The only problem is that there is, at the moment, there's absolutely no way we can build all the stuff that we are willing to pay for simply because we don't have the adequate workforce here. So we do need to quickly amp up our workforce through migration. We also need to amp up our workforce by um, making TAFE education that creates all the tradies and all the manufacturing workers that we need now that we put, you know, we reshore more manufacturing. Um, that's part of the global trend is we will reshore manufacturing. So therefore you want to bet on all manufacturing cities because the existing manufacturing hubs and suburbs within the capital cities, they will see growth because they will get more companies in. So there'll be growth opportunities there. Quickly almost lost my train of thought. That's what's happening in terms of um, migration there. The mix of migrants you, you mentioned as well in your question I mm. think will pretty much stay the same, uh, meaning largely Southeast Asian, meaning largely Indian, meaning largely uh, Chinese. You know, this is just the waves uh, that's coming. I, I think Australia might well take in as many Ukrainian refugees as they can, simply because we need skilled workers. You know, people, it doesn't matter much at this stage, because if you look at the first, or not the first, the migration waves after the Second World War of Greek and Italian migrants, these were low-skilled migrants uh, that had a tough time after the war in their European countries where unemployment was really high. And mm. so they really sent their unemployed people to Australia and to America, where we had jobs for them. And so that was really helpful. And that then shaped also the Australian homes. Remember that before the Italians, before the Greeks came to Australia, everyone lived in English looking houses. And then, the, and then yeah. the Italians, the Greeks, they looked at those houses and go like, what the heck are you doing? You live <laughs> in a Mediterranean climate and you live in English houses. This is silly. And then the Australians, smart as they were, just said, you know what? You're actually right. Let's do a bit more indoor, outdoor living. You know, let's open up the homes a bit. You know, let's let's have nice verandas and bigger porches and, you know, integrate indoor and outdoor living a bit more. So we take, we are, we are being very much influenced and shaped by the people that come to the country. I think one fun observation there 
that I uh, made a while ago when speaking with architects is I think it'd be really smart uh, to start thinking about if you build, if you plan a house from a new to not really build it according to feng shui principles because that is not the make it or break it uh, factor in a house. But it's like you know what if you can get the basics right easily why not do it that way? And then they told me that uh, currently we're building the Australian homes exactly the wrong way, uh, according to Feng Shui principles, because what you don't want is that you have the front door opening up through a straight corridor into the back door, uh, veranda door, mm. uh, because that apparently in Feng Shui makes sure that wealth goes straight out the door and isn't being right. captured in the house. I think as well, we see the often that the Northeast facing is very popular amongst us uh, us Indians, not just, you know, for various reasons. So, I mean, that's definitely been a lot of things that we consider as well. I'm often seeing in the far West and Northwest um, more prayer rooms, uh, study room conversion to prayer rooms. I'm seeing a lot more, you know, bigger rooms bedroom wise as well, because it started getting smaller a lot in, in certain areas. And then the bedrooms started getting a little bit bigger in a few estates that we've seen of late. It's very interesting to see how it's all shaping and shifting things. Now, thank you so much for that. Oh, absolutely. And so the shifts in terms of what kind of property is being demanded by the market will, will change as well. If you look at the investment market over the last decade, it was driving apartments, one and two bedroom dwellings to make sure that all of the millennials, you know, this big generation of the millennials, they just happened over the last decade to be in the renting phase of the life cycle. That's the phase in their 20s when you, you know, you just moved out of the parents' house, then you live in a rental and you really live in this rental in the inner city until you start a family. But that's a rental, a one and two bedroom dwelling will suffice. And now this big generation is leaving this rental stock behind and they're looking for three to four bedrooms. Not all of the millennials will be able to afford to buy a house, not at all, actually. So that means that the market to provide rentals to the millennials that are either still saving up to afford a home you know, uh, for, for themselves or just to service the lower income millennial market, that's the three and four bedroom segment right now. And so the one and two bedroom market will be a bit harder to service, at least in the short term, because the next generation that was meant to because this always happens at Wave, you know? And the next generation that moves into the flats that the millennials leave behind is Gen Z. That's a very small generation. And now this already small generation missed out on two years worth of migration, where we usually, you know, we throw international migrants and a couple of young skilled migrants onto this heap. So we're, we're missing out on this. So therefore, I would expect, and we're seeing this already, that the investment market is now also shifting towards larger properties. Mm. Simon, talk about the household formation and the, the millennials. They've been a, a key part of today. The other thing that we've wanting to understand is the aging population. Um, this has been not just an Australian topic, but a global topic, especially since you know, the fertility rate changes uh, from, I think it was what, 2.6, 2.7 or two, yeah, something with the two in front 30, 40 years ago, down to the 1.6, 1.7 you're talking about now. What risks and benefits does that perhaps bring from a perspective of economy and lifestyle changes across the country? Yeah, so you're completely right. Australia is aging and Australia is going to continue to age. Remember that the COVID pandemic did not have any impact on the aging population. We first thought that the pandemic might really kill off plenty of old people. We didn't. We managed the, Australia, uh, the pandemic from a health perspective really well in Australia. So we don't need to make any adjustments to the aging population. 
So that means Australia's aging is continuing to age at a very high rate. So what do you do with all those aging baby boomers? Where are they? How much money do they have? When do they hand this money over to the next generation? And what are their housing needs? Well, they largely are now becoming uh, empty nesters. Half of the baby boomers are already of retirement age. And in 10 years time, every baby boomer will be of retirement age. That doesn't mean that they will all be retired. They'll still be hanging around on company boards. They'll still have talkback radio shows. But overall, in, in a decade, they're all retired. But in the meantime, the baby boomers still live largely in middle Australia. These are the middle suburbs, you know, like five to 25 kilometers from the CBDs, if you will. There's a big chunk of middle Australia, middle suburbia, where baby boomers live in large homes as empty nesters. Those homes are too large and it would be really helpful for the millennials at the moment if they sold those houses so that they enter the market. But that is not what baby boomers will be doing. There's a lot of talk about the downsizing but people in Australia don't downsize based on financial considerations, meaning it'd be really smart to sell my house now for, you know, 1.5 million and then buy a super nice flashy apartment somewhere for half that money and, you know, top up the nest egg with seven, 800,000 bucks. That's not what Australians do. Australians live in their family home for as long as humanly possible <laughs> until the day it becomes an absolute crazy health hazard. You all live next to an Italian, a Greek grandmother that by herself lives in a four-bedroom apartment, uh, a four-bedroom house. Uh, the house is in kind of disrepair. It's She is actually not doing all that well financially, but she will live in this house until she dies. The house is worth $1.52 million, uh, but she's poor. Uh, and once she dies, her three kids will pocket five, six, seven hundred thousand bucks each when they sell the property. That's what's happening. And that's how Australians really behave on the housing market. And so the downsizing of, of baby boomers isn't occurring in the 2030s. B baby boomers are still too young, too healthy, too vital, too thick headed, if you will, um, to downsize. This will only happen in the 2030s. The 2030s is the main game for downsizing. That's when a lot of movement will enter the middle ring of the capital cities, the middle suburbs. But in the meantime, because baby boomers stay put and they have more reasons to stay put than ever before, because more and more of them work in knowledge economy type jobs where they still kind of stay connected until age, old age with their former employers or, or still employers in the city center. You know, baby boomers don't retire anymore in the sense that on Friday you, you get a gold watch and it's you know, days on end on the golf course after this. That's not how they retire. They slowly slide into retirement, you know, go down to three days per week, you know, take really long holidays um, and then, you know, still do a bit of consulting uh, here and there with the old employer. So they, they slide into retirement. That means the whole idea of selling up uh, gets postponed for them. You know, they procrastinate with downsizing, if you will. So that means on the housing market, the baby boomers, which is the bigger, bigger, bigger market here in the, in the retiree population, that will get really interesting in the 2030s. For now, they largely stay put. That's a really, really great insight because uh, I do see, you know, I had a time in my life where I was uh, branch managing an area in uh, in a bank in Marrickville. And Marrickville, as you know, is very much known in Sydney for its community of the, the Greeks, the Italians, and the amount of people, like you said, who are extremely asset rich from their home uh, with no debt, two, $3 million properties. 
but then actually were very cash flow poor or not wanting to move. It was a lot more than um, many people tend to believe or realize. And I think though, another thing we've also realized on the opposite front is for those downsizing, how important is that, you know, the regional shift as well, because we've seen places like Harvey Bay, uh, Bundaberg from a housing trend analysis where we're looking and putting offers in, in places and agents are someone sold in Brisbane. They've got half a million, 600 K in cash. And they just bought this yeah. four bedroom, two bathroom by the beach, uh, cash, no loans. Um, yeah. So I feel like there's a bit of both happening across many areas, but as you said, that holding on to it is definitely feeling like the majority for many from what we see as well. Uh, of course, and there is no such one thing as what the baby boomer does. This is a large cohort of millions of people that you know behave in a very uh, diverse range of ways. But that means, you know, we're talking about what does the mass, what does the real center of the group do? And that's the exciting thing is to understand how the big masses work and what that means for the shape of our country. Well, Simon, Lee and I have gained tremendous insights from today's session. And for our first guest as well on the Property Nerd Show, it's been so good to expand, I guess, what we talk about to different things that include so much importance and interest to the property uh, investor or the property um, buyer, where we think about just property from the numbers and deals and interest rates and so forth. But people play such a crucial part Mm -hmm. in their behaviors and decisions and where they come from, where they're going. And uh, I encourage anyone listening here to today's episode to you know, connect with Simon. Simon posts a lot on LinkedIn and he has a tremendous uh, you know, amount of content that he shares there. Simon, I won't do the honors of pronouncing your last name. How do we pronounce your last name? Kustenmacher. Kustenmacher. Now that's- uh, Nailed it. There you go. Well there you go. So um, Simon, uh, thank you once again for connecting and, and being on the show, the Property Notes podcast. And we look forward to uh, catching up with you again soon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. (laughs) Game over.